Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Richard Shotton. He's a behavioral scientist, founder of Astro10, and an author. This might not be news to you, but the human brain isn't designed to be rational. There are cheat codes to get the brain to believe strange things, do strange things, and change in ways that you might not anticipate. Richard has one of the best insights into this world of mental models, psychology, consumer behavior, principles for advertising, and social change. Expect to learn the marketing secret about behavior change that everybody forgets about, how to make habit formation absolutely seamless, why IKEA is so successful even though they don't make your furniture, a hack that any advertising campaign can use to make it stick in people's minds, how to fix the problem of choice paralysis, and much more. The absolute OGs on Modern Wisdom will recognize Richard from, I think, in the hundreds, maybe, episode, maybe 90-something, and then 150-something as well. Uh, so it's been a little while, but this guy is a complete beast. I absolutely adore his insights around human nature. He's just a, a wealth of interesting studies and stories. Uh, it, it's fascinating. You just, you, you're going to absolutely love this episode. So sit back and enjoy. You're also now part of the OGs because in, in, you know, in two years time, this will be one of the OG episodes. So, you know, you, you're slowly becoming part of the, that particular crew. Anyway, I'll stop waffling. Uh, Richard, he's great. Enjoy this one. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back Richard Shotton. Someone who has had their head under a rock for a long time and hasn't been exposed to much behavioral science. Maybe they're not an advertiser or a marketer, but they've probably got an interest in human nature. Why should anyone care about behavioral science? Okay, good, good question. So sometimes the terminology can be confusing. So if people haven't heard of behavioral science, it's essentially what we used to call social psychology. So it's the study of how people actually behave rather than how they claim to behave. And I would argue anyone who is an entrepreneur, anyone who works in marketing, anyone who is trying to influence other people should be interested in this topic. Because you know, if you're a, any of those groups, you're in the business of behavior change. And all behavioral sciences is the study, going back 130 years, of what makes for effective behavior change. So it's a super relevant topic. Above and beyond that, it is robust which actually differentiates it from an awful lot of business theory. If you think about some very popular business theories, they're based on elegant arguments. And the problem with elegance is it's not often accurate. What's great about behavioral science is it's never based on logic alone. It's always comes back to being proved by an experiment. So we can give these findings genuine um, credibility. And then the final big strength, so we've got our relevance and our robustness, the final big strength, of this topic is its range. So there are literally tens of thousands of studies. So whatever category you work in, whatever discipline you work in, there are so many behavioral science studies that pretty much whatever challenge you have in front of you, there's going to be an experiment out out there that can help you solve that challenge. What would be an example of an elegant business theory which doesn't necessarily show up in practice? Well, I think one of the big theories that um, is prominent is this discussion of purpose being 
uh, a successful way to drive business growth. Another one actually that got more interesting recently is every year the PR agency Edelman produce data on uh, trust. And the story that they normally accompany this data with is there has been a massive decline in trust. It's just not backed up by their own data. So it's it's quite um, it's quite commonplace that the headline findings that businesses and brands subscribe to aren't backed up by um, an analysis of the, the the actual data. You use an example about why margarine isn't grey at the very yeah. start of the book. Why is that illustrative? Uh, so there's a lovely study, a really old study by a psychologist called Louis Cheskin, where he was working with margarine manufacturers. So these manufacturers back in the 1940s are trying to um, win over consumers, stop them buying butter, stop buying margarine. And if he went out and directly questioned those shoppers, they said, well, I don't buy margarine because it tastes bloody awful. I don't like the taste. That's why I don't buy it. But Cheskin was suspicious of this claimed data. So he set up a really simple experiment. He got a speaker and he invited local people to come in and listen to the speaker. And after they'd listened to the speaker, there was a buffet laid on. And part of that buffet was um, bread and a spread on it. And sometimes people thought they were eating bread and butter. Sometimes they thought they were eating bread and margarine. Now, in reality, Cheskin had switched things around. So he dyed the butter grey, so it looked like 1940s margarine. And he dyed the margarine yellow, so it looked like 1940s butter. And when people ate margarine masquerading as butter, they said, oh, it tastes beautiful. It's wonderful. When they ate butter masquerading as margarine, they said it tasted bloody awful. So what he showed by that was it wasn't the taste that mattered, it was the colour. You know, what we expect to experience is a massive guide to what we actually experience. And one of the things that sets those expectations is, is the colour and the look of our food. So it's a really, really old study. But what's interesting about it is he recognised that a direct questioning of consumers is really problematic. What people tell us is often inaccurate in terms of their genuine motivation. So psychologists say people confabulate. You know, often they try and tell the truth, but because they don't have full introspective insight into their own motivations, when they give answers in focus groups or surveys, you know, they're trying to be honest, but those answers tend to be misleading. So what psychologists do instead is set up these test and control situations and they observe how people behave. And that, that tends to generate a more accurate answer. Stated and revealed preferences are just such an interesting divergence. It's something that I've been working on at the moment, looking at the mating market and, and some of the challenges that young people face. Yeah. And when you look at mating preferences and you ask people, um, uh, let's say that you would ask women, uh, would you mind getting into a relationship with a man that was the same height as you? Would you mind yeah, getting yeah, yeah. into a relationship with a man that was the same education level as you? Would you mind being the breadwinner in a, in a marriage? Most of the time, women are okay with these things. But when you actually look at the revealed preferences of the kinds of 
guys that they end up going for, they tend to be a little taller, a little better educated, and a little more wealthy. And again, this isn't to say that women are being purposefully deceptive, nor your margarine-hating, butter-eating people from the 1940s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's simply a byproduct of the fact that we do not... Well, there's a few things going on. It would be socially... Uh, when you're asking somebody a question, there are certain sort of s social mores and cues and concerns about what people are going to think and say about your response. I mean, that the, the observer effect, I suppose, is going to be a yeah, big deal the, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you, I think you're absolutely right there. I think there are there are two factors going on. You're absolutely right. A bit more complicated than I was making out. I think you've got a subset of answers where people self-edit. They think, well, what does society? What? What? How can I answer? That makes me look like a upstanding, admirable person in society. But then there's this bigger problem, I think, of often people don't know their own motivations. So you yeah. put them on the spot, they give you loads of answers, but many of them uh, are misleading. They just possibly uh, I mean, on the point, yeah, there's, there's a, I don't know, have you read this wonderful book by Christian Rudder called Dataclism? So he was the founder and chief technology officer of OK Cupid. And I think the, the subtitle of the book is, Saying like, how do you know what what no, what what do what do people do when they think no one's looking? And it's an analysis of all the data he has on dating, which show that yeah, what people actually do is wildly different from what they say to be for both men and women. Yeah, I mean, Seth Stevens Davidowitz has been on the show twice. Yes, brilliant, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Did you see his? Most... Everybody lies. Yeah, yeah. So everybody lies was the first one, and then his most recent book which is about the biggest questions people ask. And I haven't stopped talking about it for ages, and I can't believe that. I can't remember what it's called. Not Everybody Lies. Everybody Lies was the one that discovered that Indian, the country of India loves Ooh. breast porn, breastfeeding yeah. porn. Um, the most recent one was using, uh, don't trust your gut. Thank God for that. Don't trust your gut is the new one, dude. You would you'll you'll fall in love with that book. It's phenomenal. But it's basically just the same thing. It's a um, data revealing what our genuine uh, preferences are. Yes, a particular subset of data because right. he's arguing. I think it uh, is that in a focus group or survey situation, which most brands do. This is you know, the vast majority of how brands and businesses find out about their customers. They just directly ask them. But he, he says the motivations of the customer in that scenario is to make themselves look good in front of the questioner. So it's not the motivation is not to tell the truth. He compares that then with search on Google or Facebook or Pinterest, where he says the motivations of the searcher, when you're typing something into a search box, are completely aligned with telling the truth. Because if you don't put in what you genuinely want, you're going to get the wrong answer. So I think you're absolutely right. Prioritizing that data that people generate when they think others aren't watching. That's really powerful stuff. Okay, so you've got 16 and a half uh, cognitive biases that form this most recent book yeah, yeah, of yeah. yours. Uh, the first one is habit formation. Why is that important? Yes. Yeah. So there's, a, there's an awful lot of work by psychologists into habit formation, and it breaks down into two broad areas. So the, the broad argument is people have so many decisions to make every single day, they don't have the time or the energy or the wherewithal to wipe those decisions in a fully considered manner. And therefore, um, what they do as a coping strategy is either rely on what psychologists call heuristics, pick the middle option, pick the most popular option, 
or they go even further and they just uh, repeat the same behaviors again and again. So if they find themselves in a similar situation, they repeat the same behavior they did last time. They don't even weigh up alternative ways of behaving. So um, Susan Fisk describes this as people being cognitive misers. Now, they have the capability to think deeply, but because thinking is e um, effortful, because it's energy intensive, we ration that capability. Thousands of decisions to make every day, we can't use that capability on every one of them. Uh, Daniel Kahneman puts it a little bit more uh, amusingly. He says, thinking is to humans as swimming is to cats. Now, we can do it, but we'd rather not. So an awful lot of our behavior uh, is habitual, just this repeating the same behaviors again and again. That's a problem if you as a business or you as a person want to get someone to do something differently, because how do you get them to change their behavior if they're not even weighing up your merits compared to their existing form of behavior? But the first thing that psychologists identify is that there are predictable moments when those habits are, are weakened. So Catherine Milkman, for example, talks about this idea called the fresh start effect. Her hypothesis is that one of the big drivers of human nature is a desire to be consistent. So many, many cultures have lots of negative language about people who are inconsistent. So this desire for consistency gets us repeating behaviors. She then says, well, look, when we enter new time periods, our link with our past self is weakened and we are more open to change. So that's her hypothesis. But as I said earlier, the great thing about behavioral science is no one ever stops at that stage. They then look at various different data sets and observe data sets to try and test the idea. So she looks at gym registration data, gym attendance data, uh, volumes of search terms around things like quitting smoking, dieting. And for all these data sets, when she plots them over time, she sees pronounced spikes at the start of new time periods, beginning of the year, as we might expect, but also beginning of the month, beginning of the week, after people's birthdays, uh, after public holidays. All these moments are typified by people being more open to change. So the first thing around habit formation is you've got to break an existing habit. What behavioral scientists do is identify when you should time your communications to maximize that, to get to get that biggest effect. So if you do now, a uh, an advertising campaign that plays off the back of New Year, New You. That, that, yeah, that would be an example. So that, that would be an example. Um, Spotify is an example. So Spotify have Discover Weekly. They send you a new set of tracks, kind of a bit like things you listen to, but you've never actually listened to them. They've tried to launch that service two or three times, and it failed the first two times because they launched it on Thursday, Throwback Thursdays. Then they launched it as Feel Good Fridays. It was only when they launched it as Discover Weekly on a Monday that they tapped into the fresh start effect. No way. Yeah, yeah. And they, they were, um, I think they worked with Richard Thaler either to post-rationalize it or a, a stimulus to, to test that idea. If you think that one's uh, uh, interesting, the best example I've seen of the fresh start effects is from the West Midlands. So the police launched a intervention with criminals, which tried to encourage them to stop a life of crime, get back on the straight and narrow. So they were going to be 
helped with all sorts of support to get jobs and you know, break the break the kind of cycle. Half the people that they sent out this, they basically sent out a message saying, "No, we know, we're on to you. Ring this number, and we'll help you start a new life." Sometimes they just sent that out randomly. Sometimes they sent it straight after the criminal's birthday, and they saw about and be worth double checking this, but I think it was either three or fourfold increase in response rates when the message went out around people's, just after people's birthdays. So this is a situation in which, you know, this is a very, very hard audience to change their behavior. Even amongst hardened criminals, using this timing technique of the fresh start effects can boost, uh, boost effectiveness. That's spectacular. That is really, really cool. It's really cool. And it's something, she, she talks about this in her paper where she says, you know, often look at institutions that have lasted a huge time. Many institutions have realized this. So she talks about the Catholic church. It's not necessarily relying on an existing fresh start. They created their own moment when people kind of sloughed off their past self and thought of themselves in you and therefore weren't um, hampered by this kind of bugbear of consistency. So she talks about the confessional. You, know, you go into that, you admit your sins. When you come out, you're a fresh person. Therefore, you're, you're op it's open to change. You don't feel like you're being inconsistent and hy hypocritical. So you can both harness this bias by targeting particular moments, but you can also harness this bias by creating kind of moments of um, uh, reappraisal. What about uncertain rewards and loyalty schemes? Uh, okay, so if that's breaking a habit you've then got all sorts of different studies into well how do you recreate uh, a new behavior and one of the most interesting ones is the one you mentioned which is around uncertain rewards so the initial work for this goes all the way back to the 1930s and to the kind of archetypal mad professor a psychologist called bf skinner and what he does in his most famous bit of work is create these boxes so he puts a rat into a box or a pigeon and there's a little lever in the box. The animal doesn't know what a lever is. So first of all, it just ignores it. But sooner or later, it will bump into the lever and then out comes a sugar drop. So the rat will quickly learn to pump away at the lever to be rewarded with these sugar drops. Rats love a sugar drop. Skinner waits until the habit is embedded keep on pushing away this lever and being rewarded with one sugar drop he then turns off the sugar supply and then monitors how long it takes for that habit to decay and it's remarkably quick very quickly the rat becomes bored of the lever then he creates another set of boxes and puts in a fresh group of rats and the boxes are basically the same apart from one variation now when the rats press the lever, rather than always getting a single drop, sometimes they get nothing. Sometimes they get one sugar drop, sometimes two, sometimes three. Averages out at one sugar drop per press, but there's this element of randomness, element of variability. When Skinner then turns off the sugar supply, well, then the rat keeps on pumping away at that lever for ages. The habit is deeply embedded. What Skinner said is if you want to create a habit, far better to reward the behavior that you want with an uncertain and variable reward rather than a fixed reward. Now, later work by people like Shen and Fishback have shown that exactly the same thing 
happens with humans. We are more motivated by this variable reward than, than a fixed one. Now, if you take this principle, you can then apply it to your um, loyalty schemes, which are essentially schemes to try and generate habitual behavior by your shopper. What uh, Skinner or Sharon Fishback would say is most loyalty schemes at the moment make a mistake. What most loyalty schemes do is say, you come to our coffee shop, you buy 10 coffees and we'll give you a free one. That is a fixed and certain reward. What they would say is you can make that scheme far more powerful without spending any more money by adding an element of variability. Don't give out a transactional relationship of 10 coffees, one free reward. Instead, give your staff the option to give out roughly 10% of coffees for free. So I might go in 20 times and not get one. You might get one every five times. You know, there's an element of uncertainty. You know, that would be applying uh, Shen and Fishback study. Would that be the same as the McDonald's Monopoly stickers? Oh, go on. So so what what do they do there? That's the, um, it's just the kind of fractions. Yeah, you buy a Happy Meal and on the side of a cup and on the side of the fries, I want to say, are uh, double stickers and you peel them off and sometimes it's a free McFlurry, sometimes it's a free whatever and then you can also combine these together in order to build up a Monopoly board. Now, if you want to go down a real rabbit hole with this, once everyone's finished watching this episode, there is an amazing documentary on YouTube just by a small creator. If you search uh, McDonald's Lottery Scam... And what it talks about is when McDonald's first released the lottery, it went absolutely wild. And they were very concerned around, they were, they were dropping, I think it was a million dollars or maybe it was a lot of money. It was like at least hundreds of thousands of dollars that people could win with just one of these stickers. Uh, so yeah. they, they left one guy, one dude that used to be part of an advertising company in charge of this. So they gave him the job of security. This guy who's always won- start winning. Yeah. So he gets in with the mob. He starts, oh he, get, okay. he, he becomes almost like a, a, a wannabe gangster because he's able to deploy all of these different, and they've got a sophisticated system. It's um, people that are unrelated, cashing them in, in different States, using different names, using different IDs, Blah, blah, blah. But then when you actually look at where all of the money ends up coming back to, it's within a, a three mile radius of his uh, home postcode or something like that. And um, uh, it's, yeah. it's just fascinating. They, it, this guy gets away with it for ages and ages. And the way that he gets away with it is he has McDonald's on the hook. It might not be McDonald's. I think it's technically the company that did the competition on behalf of McDonald's uh, because they weren't following elements of security correctly as well. So he ends up having something over them mm-hmm. and then he gets caught and then. Oh, dude, it's a really, really great story. But very variable schedule reward, same thing that's happening with social media. You open your phone, you don't know how many notifications oh. you're going to have. If you've got any DMs from someone that's cool or interesting or whatever, it's the exact thing that Instagram uses. I think too. you're exactly right about social media, that if you went onto Twitter or Facebook and there was no knowledge of how your tweet had been received, I think it would have faded. It would have disappeared by now. It's that excitement of not knowing whether you get 10 retweets or two or 50. And it keeps people coming back again and again. So you can see, I think, the absolute power there. You know, the other one on a much smaller scale, and there were some uh, unintended consequences of this. There was a lovely example from Sweden. I think it was Stockholm. 
um, they decided to introduce this lottery mechanic to their speed camera or speed cameras. You drove past and if you were speeding, you got a fine and your money went into a giant pot. If you drove past and you were under the speed limit, well, every, let's say, 10,000 cars, they took a photo of you, got your number plate, and then you were given a proportion of all the, the fines. And there's some lovely data about the average uh, speed in that in those kind of streets dropping quite significantly. Wow, so, so that's a very like effective, very effective solution. Yes, yeah, there was. I mean, the only problem with that one, I think it proves the principle, but it also shows that introducing these ideas is very context dependent. What they hadn't factored was, I think, that some people would try and game the system. So they found that some people just kept on driving around and around the block to go past the speed camera to hope they would win the lottery. So kind of worked but it's a, it's, it's a nice i think um proof of concept that's fantastic okay next one make it easy make it easy so this is this is an interesting one in that there is an argument for people like daniel kahneman that people are he, so he, he says that people often have the wrong mental model about how to change behavior so in a recent interview he was asked, what's the single most important thing he'd learned from the hundreds and hundreds of experiments he'd run? And he said, well, that's simple. Three words, make it easy. And he argues that um, the, so, the most effective way to change behavior is to focus on making it easy or removing friction. Whereas what most people try and do is increase motivation. Most people try and make the audience desire uh, the behavior that they want to encourage. Now, that's Kahneman's argument. Even though he's a Nobel laureate, nothing in behavioral science is taken on someone's word alone. Everything has to be proved experimentally. And Bergman and Rogers uh, run this wonderful experiment with the Department of Education in America trying to test the idea. So back in 2017, they launched this new service where parents can sign up and they will be texted information on how to encourage their children to work harder. They launched the service in one of three ways. First way is the kind of what they call the standard way. People are texted information and they're told, if you want to sign up for the service, just click on this link. The link took them to the form, 30 seconds of effort to fill it in. And in that scenario, 1% of people sign up. Next group of randomly selected people texted the same information about why the service is amazing. But this time, they are told, if you want to sign up, just text us back the word start. So they've removed about 30 seconds of effort, tiny, tiny bit of effort, and you get an eightfold increase in sign up rates. Next and final scenario, another group of randomly selected parents texted the same information about why the service is amazing, but they are told you are enrolled if you don't want to be text back the word stop. And you get 97% of people enrolling. So this removal of tiny bit, bits of friction changes the enrollment rates in this program by 96 percentage points. So it backs up Kahneman's idea that small bits of friction can have a disproportionate effect. But then comes the clever bit. The psychologists then go out and recruit 100 plus educational experts, teachers, head teachers, administrators. They tell those experts the setup uh, of their three different scenarios 
and they get the experts to try and predict what they think the sign-up rates will be in each scenario. Now, those experts aren't stupid. They know that friction will put people off. So they get the direction of change right, but they are wildly wrong in terms of the scale of the impact. So they think that about 35% of people will sign up in the standard variant, 45 or so in the simplified, 66, I think, or so on the auto-enrollment. So they think there'll be a 21 percentage point change in behavior based on the removal of friction, whereas in reality, it was a 96 percentage point change. So what they argue is that experts have the wrong model of human behavior. They underestimate the importance of friction. They overestimate the importance of motivation. And from that, they go and make the argument that this means that many businesses misallocate their resources. So too much time and an effort goes into motivating an audience to want the product. Too little time and an effort goes into making it as easy as possible to get the get the product. That's brilliant. And I can also see from my uh, history running nightclubs for a decade and a half that some of the things that we used to do felt a lot like pressing on the accelerator as opposed to removing the brake. We yeah. would be doing things that would entice people to come down as opposed to asking the question, why are people not attending? Like, why are people not attending? Is it that we need to make it easier for them to get from where they are to the nightclub? Do we need to put on party buses that can pick up 40 people at a time and give them a schedule of when they just need to be outside of their house? Do we maybe need to just run that without even asking them if they need picking up? Maybe they just need to be collected. There's going to be a bus at 9, 10, and 11 from outside of the student union, and it will deposit you here. You don't need to sign up in advance. It's just first come, first serve, and it'll always be there. Something like that. We never that's ask a, those. Yeah, that, that's to me, that is a lovely example because I can imagine if you're working in the nightclub business and someone comes with an idea about bus schedules, you're like, oh, my God, this guy should have been an accountant. Not sexy. If they come with no. an amazing... Uh, exciting, creative promotion. You're like, this is the person for me. What Kahneman says, this is almost like the kind of a Cassandra curse. It was actually the bus timetabling thing that would have been far more effective. <laughs> it should have been a, working for Transport of London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wasn't, there, um, wasn't there an equivalent that I read about a long time ago, it may have been from you, to do with pension contributions when people got raises? Yes. So there is a lovely example. So the Behavioural Insights team did the work in Britain, I think 2013, 2012. And it's an amazing one. So up until then, this is a kind of a natural experiment. You had to do about five minutes of admin, so early 2010s, and then you would be enrolled in your company pension scheme. And when that was the case, about 61% of people in large companies were enrolled. The government then make a change, which is everyone has to be enrolled unless they sign a form saying they don't want to be in it. So it takes about five minutes of work to get out of the pension scheme. Now, suddenly, within well, sorry, within six months, uh, enrollment rates in those companies has gone up to 83%. That's a 22 percentage point change. Now, remember, the government is spending tens of billions of pounds in tax incentives to get people into a pension. And what turns out to have the biggest effect is not those tens of millions, billion, billions of pounds incentive. It is a tiny, tiny bit of admin. If you move it from having to opt in and spend time to get into the pension to opting out, 
you have a phenomenal change of behavior. So you're absolutely right. That would be a massive scale example of how these little, little bits of friction have a much bigger than expected uh, effect. I have no idea where I've pulled that study from, but I remember it I remember it being lurking in the back of my mind. There was also something else to do with um increases in pension contribution. Uh you try to suggest to workers you should give more of your pension next year or something like that and you got very low levels of enrollment. However, when people got a raise you said we're going to give a higher percentage or of this raise, just yeah, a little yeah. bit less raise is going to come to you because a tiny bit more is going to go to the pension. It was this unseen, as yet unactualized, extra salary portioned off a little bit more aggressively into pension. And the uptake from that was way higher yes. as well. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great So that is a uh, Richard Taylor and Shlomo Bonazzi uh, idea called Save More Tomorrow. And what they talk about is this idea called present preference bias or present bias or hyperbolic discounting rate, which essentially means I've anyone values uh, pleasure in the now much more than pleasure in the, the future. So and the same with pain. The point being, if I uh, lose, if, I t- if I'm told things that cost me five pounds now, it's painful. If I'm told that things that cost five pounds in a month's time, it doesn't bother me. You know, we, we act as if there is a very steep discount rate between now and the future. So what, yeah, what Shlomo Bonazzi and Thaler did was say with these companies, why don't you set up a scheme where you're not essentially asking people to put money into their pension now, you're saying, will you agree to put money into your pension in a year's time? We'll sign it or come out automatically in a year's time. And people think, well, I don't care what happens in a year's time. I mean, you know, that's so, so distant, it's attenuated. It doesn't viscerally affect me. And that led to significant increases in in pension contributions so yeah there's this whole host of bias i think you what, what you're getting to there is that there are so many of these biases as long as you can match the right one to the challenge you have you've got these really effective evidence-based tools to use do you ever look at the other guys and girls that are in your industry like the thalers and the sutherlands and the shottens of the world and look at yourselves kind of like wizards because you pretty much are <laughs> like what it is that you're able to do is akin to alchemy or wizardry. I know. Well, Rory Sutton has that wonderful phrase. I mean, his book it's called Alchemy. Um, so, I, th- I think that this is something that is available to everyone. I mean, the great thing is you have hundreds upon hundreds of psychologists, thousands upon thousands of psychologists working full time, running studies that are then put into the public domain. So, if if you run a business. You know, and you haven't got a giant research department. Well, why not use the accumulated knowledge of of all these psychologists? So, I think you're right. There is some very powerful work that other people have been created. It is a crying shame not to harness uh, th- these studies. Okay, make it difficult. Uh, so, what I argue make it easy is if you want to change behaviour. First thing you should think about is removing friction. What are the blockage stopping people? Put more time and effort. Think about those and getting rid of them. However, there are nuances to these studies. And on some occasions, you might want to add a tiny bit of of, of friction in. So if you want to change someone's perception of the value of your products, if you want to make people think this is a, a premium, worthwhile product, then there is an argument for adding friction. So the study that's relevant here 
is from uh, Dan Ariely. So he comes up with an idea called the IKEA effect. And what he does, him and Michael Norton, they recruit a group of people and they show them a professionally made IKEA box. And then they ask those people, how much do you want to bid to take that box home with you? And from memory, and I'll be a little bit out of here, but let's say average bid is 40 cents. Next group, same process, bring them into the lab, show them an IKEA box, but this time it's not assembled, it's just in pieces on the floor and the participants have to build it themselves. These people then spend a bit of time putting the box together and then they are asked to um, put a bid in for how much they'll pay to take this box home. And you see a jump, I think it's of the order of about 60%. I think we get up to about 70 cents is the average bid. Now, what Norton and Ariely argue, and they do this test in multiple different ways. They try essentially the same thing with origami birds, lots and lots of different experiments to prove the same point. But what they argue is the more effort someone goes to, the more they appreciate the product. So you have this slight tension. If you want to change behavior, remove friction. But if the problem you have as a business is people think your product is a bit crap, maybe they think the, the quality is the problem. Well, there you might want to think about adding a small uh, dash of friction. So an example of this in practice, there is a lovely study which has real world uh, implications by uh, Ryan Buell, where he creates a or works with a, uh, a travel comparison site and gets thousands of people to look at uh, searching for holidays. And sometimes the results are served up immediately. Sometimes there is a very small delay. And whilst there's that delay for a, you know, a few seconds, there's a little bar that goes round and round saying searching Alitalia, searching British Airways, searching Delta Airlines. Now, when the two groups are asked to report back on how comprehensive they think the results are, the group that have the delay that see the effort that's going on they will rate that product as better so you can take this study in slightly abstract settings that Ariely Norton have done you can then apply it to your web design or your restaurant layout you know let people see into the kitchen so they can see the work that's going on now you can take some of these ideas and they can have a very practical uh, set of implications for a brand I use Skyscanner a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They deploy exactly the same thing. We're searching Air France, we're searching Air Lingus, we're searching KLM, we're searching British Airways. Are you telling me that that's all fucking performative? I'm saying that there is a, well, it'd be, it, if it's not, it's highly coincidental. There is a study <laughs> from about 10 years ago on travel comparison sites, which shows wow. if you purposely slow down the site and you've got to make sure people uh the the effort they're going to is visible yes then that product they've diddled me they've bloody good. diddled me so one of uh, my, my old business partner for the nightclub stuff one of his housemates mm. is a, a quantitative analyst uh freelancing and he's been yeah. brought in by people like lloyd's to uh do all manner of complex analysis that to them apparently is just total cutting edge stuff whereas to him is he can do it in his sleep he's a smart guy and um, 
he created a spreadsheet. He needed to create a spreadsheet in order to be able to do this presentation for them. He's presenting this, finally, the culmination of maybe six months of work by him uh, as this consultant. And he created, he spent, he said, at least a full day learning how to artificially render loading bars in Excel. And he did it for exactly the same reason, that he pressed a button and Excel just, it's numbers, right? It's not its not computing the world. It's not trying to calculate the trajectory of the sun. It's trying to work out that how much money's left in the bank account. Uh, and apparently it would just, bing, it would do it instantly. But he artificially added in this computational yeah, effort yeah. With, a, with a loading bar. And he even managed, I think he managed to get it to get almost to the end and then it would stop for about five seconds as if it was really having to, turn the cogs of the the processing power within the computer yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. and then bink and then it would arrive and yeah you can feel you're on the edge of your seat you know you're waiting for the the compare the market.com do exactly yeah. the same thing so you got so you've got two tactics i think that you can apply here you've got make your customer go to a little bit of effort and you've got to be careful to do it at the right time and not do it willy-nilly you know focus few moments but this is essentially like the wine cork you know someone has to spend physical effort getting into the bottle it makes them feel like this is a high premium item so getting your consumer to go to a bit of effort boosts quality perceptions that's the ikea effect and then i think you've got this other bit which is very related which is if the consumer can see the efforts you've gone to they appreciate it more and sometimes that's kind of moving to this idea of the illusion of effort now my favorite example of that is probably Dyson. So if you think about what is the repeated PR story of Dyson, it's the fact that he went through 5,187 prototypes before he got to his bagless vacuum. Now, if consumers were completely logical, rational decision makers, it wouldn't matter. It doesn't care if he's gone through one or a million prototypes. What should matter is the quality of the product itself. But what people like Eva uh, uh, Morales say is... That's how people should behave, but behavioural scientists are interested in how, how people actually behave. And working out the quality of a product is a very time-consuming and difficult thing to do. Working out how much effort that product has been to, that is the uh, much easier to, to take in. And what people often do is when they're faced with a complex, difficult calculation, which gives them an ideal answer, is they almost without knowing it, replace that calculation with a simpler and almost as accurate question. So people perhaps should be asking, how high quality is this product? Because that's tricky, they end up saying, how much effort do I think that brand has gone to? And they use that as a proxy for, for, for quality. So the argument to um, service providers like your friend or to brands is not to fictitiously invent efforts, because most people go to them, but it's to make sure your client or the consumer knows you've been to them. Be much, much more transparent. Make sure you 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 tell them. I can't remember who it was that I was speaking to that used the example of bags of flour and uh, pre-cooked breads in the windows of Italian restaurants. Oh, go on, yeah. Just that it is, you know, especially if it's artisanal flour that's been ecologically sourced from the, the, okay, the yeah, hills yeah, yeah, of yeah. the Himalayas, you think, oh my God, look, they've got the flower, the flowers out front. 
I mean, that's how, you know, why would they put it in the, in the fucking window? They don't even need it in the window. It needs to be in the kitchen where <laughs> it's of any use. Um, but I wonder whether that's a, a, a an obvious display of, of care about this. I also, it's, I've, I'm kind of thinking about the more cottage industry, um, you know, local, very middle upper class, uh, shop. Everything's served to you wrapped in brown paper and fucking twine. You know, you know, it's got one of every preserved jar's got one of those crisscross red and white lids on the top of it. I just think that all of these are little signals of effort. You know, look at like God, if they if they care this much about the twine that they've wrapped my my ham shoulder in, then surely they've gone through the effort of this other stuff too. So there is a whole body of work, especially people working the kind of food and drink. There's a whole body of work around the idea that what we experience when we drink or eat something is partly what we expect to experience. So it's very, very important to set up positive expectations about a food or drink. That could be through price. It could be through the way that you serve the product, the care and attention, the twine. It could be the description that you give. It could be the the brand that it comes from. But you've got to set up those positive expectations. People do not objectively weigh up the chemical constituents of a food. You know, they're, they're eating with their mind. Um, there's a lovely study by a Stanford psychologist called Baba Shiv. And he serves people five different bottles of wine. Uh, and each of those bottles of wine has a prominent price label. But the twist in the experiment is there are only four different liquids. One of the wines is repeated. So sometimes people are drinking wine thinking it costs $5 a bottle. A couple of minutes later, they have a little sample of a wine. It's exactly the same wine, but they, they think it's different and they think it costs $45 a bottle. When Shiv asks the participants to rate the scores of those wines, they rate the same wine that they're told is expensive 70% higher. So people have a rule of thumb in their head that, if it's expensive, it must be high quality. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, those expectations aren't just a, ni- a nice to have. They're absolutely crucial for a, for a brand. What was the book that came out uh, about a year and a half ago or two years ago, two co-authors, um, Pop Neuro was the website that they Ooh. used. And they had, you'll have 100% seen it. I can't believe, maybe Matt was one of the author's names and the other guy was like subcontinentally. Oh, uh, Blindsight, Matt Johnson. Thank you. Thank God for I, that. Yeah, I think yes. so. Yeah. Um, in Very that, good book. Yeah, good phenomenal book. Marketing, yeah. Yeah. Really nice uh, like compliment to your your uh, both of yours. Uh, and in that, they did that example. They, they found a study where uh, sommeliers had been given one glass of white and one glass of red wine. Yeah. And they'd said, look, pl- please give us the notes. And if yeah. you haven't watched SOM, which is an amazing documentary on Netflix that goes through, if you want to become a top flight sommelier, the standard of training that you have to go through is crushing it is absolutely insane you need to be able to detect from the smell and sip of a glass uh what year it is what vintage it is not only what country it's from but which um particular region of which country what time of year it was harvested what amount of time it's been fermented for every it's absolutely insane anyway they give these sommeliers um 
one white, one red. Please give us the notes that you think. Yeah. Blah, blah. Oh, it's, a, yeah. Ooh, yeah. it's got, you know, moccasins and Lynx Africa and whatever else is, yeah. is fucking coming through. That's favorite combo. And yeah. it turns out that the white wine, sorry, the red wine was just the white wine with red food coloring in yeah. it. Um, and they did another one where they had four different types of gourmet pate. And one oh, of them God. was actually dog food. Oh, God. And yeah. no one, no one could pick the dog food out no one could uh yeah. which is just insane so i think the first thing to learn learn from this study is if you like buying expensive wine get your partner to buy two bottles the normal stuff you buy and a bottle from little and make sure you actually appreciate it in a blind test otherwise ah um, yes yeah. yeah well yeah. i mean yeah. that would be a uh, justification for just delabeling all of the wine that you have, and then maybe you could use variable choice reward as well. Especially if you have a um, well, I suppose that this is what's happening with what? with wine boxes in a way, uh, and all of these at home delivery selection things. Because what you're doing is you're not quite sure what's going to arrive. You've created some constraints. I want it to be sweet. I like red. I like Chardonnay. I like a blah, blah. Or, you know, whether it's Gusto or any other kind of delivery service, uh, Butcher Box, any kind of monthly prize giveaway. Uh, but you don't quite know what you're going to get. So there is an element of variable schedule reward. And there is a, a, a an uncertainty around... It, it pushes your preconceived ideas of your uh, stated preferences and actually allows them to kind of clash up against something that you surprisingly might enjoy. Yes, yeah. I think I think I think the the whole gusto food box model is fascinating and I think it's this wonderful balance of make it easy make it hard. What they've done is uh recognize that people fall into a rut of just cooking the same thing again and again because they don't have the mental energy to keep on thinking of new recipes. So they make it very, very easy to have that variety. Um, but they also recognize that cooking from scratch is um, uh, difficult. So they provide you all the ingredients, again, make it easy. But they don't push it to the logical conclusion. What they don't send you is meals that you stick in the microwave because they know that if they did that, it wouldn't, even if it tasted just as good, it wouldn't... Um, even if the food tasted just good from an objective level, people wouldn't appreciate it much because you need that little bit of effort to feel like a, a proper chef putting things together a bit. What was that thing where you added an egg? Betty Crocker. Thank you. Yeah, That's this is one of Rory's, story right? That, well, it's a story that inspired uh, Dan Ariely and Michael Norton to write the IKEA uh, effect paper. I knew that. So, I knew that, yeah. Richard. So they have it at the beginning of their paper and they say, look, is this an anecdote, this whole story of, Betty Crocker didn't sell when it was just a instant cake mix that you poured into a tub and whisked up with water. Um, and then it only took off when they retrospectively added an extra step of cracking an egg into it. They say, look, is this too good to be true? Is it just marketing myth? Why don't we go and test it in controlled circumstances? Amazing. All right. The generation yeah. effect. What's that? So the generation effect, uh, 1970, study, I think it might be 1978, two Canadian psychologists, uh, Graf and Slameka at the University of Toronto, recruit a group of people. They give them a long list of words. The first half get, let's say, cat, fish, dog, weasel, elephant. They're given this list of words, then they can read through it. It's taken away and they try and later on recall as much as they can. Next group of people, 
get essentially the same list of words, but rather than it being cat, it's C blank T, then it's D-O blank, then it's, I'm not going to try and spell weasel and elephant, um, but it's just the uh, all the words with one or two letters missing. When that group try and recall the phrases a little bit later, they remember between 10 and 15% more. Now, the psychologist's argument is that the second list of words is more memorable because people have to generate the answer themselves, hence the generation effect. And it's that act of creation that sticks the idea in, in people's minds. So there you have this fascinating tension again with advertising. You need to create an ad that is um, easy enough for people to understand. They don't just walk and buy. But if you don't give any role for the consumer, then it's very forgettable. What you really want to get is this kind of uh, this balance of ease and difficulty again. So some people have applied that in a very pedestrian way. Um, you know, there was a there was an ad for um, cancer research, I think, where it said the second biggest cause of cancer is O, B, blank, S, blank, T, Y. That's the generation effect. You know, it's a very literal um, use of a well-known psychological experiment, and it will have very positive results. It will stick in people's minds. But when it it's done really well is when I think people apply these experiments with a bit of creative flair. So you go back to um, 1980s, 1990s, and you think about the classic economist ad. You know, I never read The Economist. And at the bottom, it said management trainee, age 42. Now, that, I think, is a lateral application of the generation effect. What David Abbott, the writer of the, the poster, was doing there was not directly stating you are a failure if you don't read The Economist. He was setting up this interesting, amusing, reasonably simple puzzle that uh, viewers had to solve. And by solving it, they're essentially generating the answer. And that makes it sticky. That makes it memorable. So you've got this literal application by cancer research. You know, great ad. But where I think you get to the real brilliant ads is when people are doing it with this. Um, they're harnessing the general insight of the study. They're not sticking to it um completely literally that's beautiful like i that that idea the subtext of a 43 year old management trainee somebody that is floundering in their career they should be further yeah. along than now uh still there's even i don't read the economist or i never read the economist there's something kind of snooty and self-righteous about it as well i already don't like this 43 year old management trainee it's yeah. just it's it's gorgeous it's like a razor sharp incision of of a bunch of different memes yeah, well that's what i think i think that idea of it being multiple things at once is, is brilliant so you've got this generation effect of the audience answer uh, coming up with the uh the, the the solution as it were you've got this distinctiveness you know most brands never go out and say do not buy me so firstly that grabs your attention and then i think the third and final point is and this, I think we might have heard Rory Sutton say this, is that often you can get across a slightly uh, unflattering or not very nice message with a dash of humour. You know, the underlying message in The Economist is a little bit nasty. It's, you're a failure if you don't read our product. But they manage to 
say it with a bit of charm, which means that they can convey that slightly mean message without offending people. So yeah, I think there are lots of strands in that particular ad that make it so good. Can you ask questions to trigger the generation effect as well? Yes, um, there is a, uh, an, I think it's Aluwalia study, which shows um, if you pose a statement as a question, you tend to boost credibility and believability. However, I think the the kind of slight complication was the success of that depended on the um, prestige the brand was held in. So if the brand is admired, it works very well. If the brand is low status or unadmired, it works quite badly. What's an example of that? Think, so um, I think the the sentence he has kind of in his study is something along the lines of, you know, did you know Avanti shoes can um, reduce osteoporosis? I've not got that quite right. Other times, the other half of people in the study just saw a statement of anti-shoes reduce osteoporosis. And he found uh, if there had been preceding positive information about Avanti, big boost by using the question. If he had run some ne- people had seen negative information about this fictitious corporation, the question often backfired. Oh, so it's mediated by how... The, how well yeah. the brands foresee. I mean, I think a lot of these questions as well, if you're going to um, use a very cool, slightly effortful advert with, you know, some blank spaces in or someone's got to fill it in, that, for instance, The Economist advert works because The Economist is an institution. It wouldn't work for edition one of the new businessman monthly, perhaps. Yeah, or, or maybe it wouldn't. it would work for both those brands, but it wouldn't work without... Uh, David Abbott's copywriting skills. You know, you can imagine someone trying to pose essentially the same point in a slightly, you know, pedestrian pedestrian way, and it flopping. Which to to me is one thing. It's worth stressing about behavioural science. I would always take the approach that these experiments are just and, and insights are just hypotheses about human nature. It's just half the task. What a marketer or an entrepreneur needs to do is then take the insight. Mm. And then they need to uh, apply a dash of creativity. So if that sounds a little bit woolly. One of my favourite examples that I've come across a few t- from separate sources, a few separate sources recently, is around a creative use of social proof. So social proof is the argument that we are deeply influenced by other people. So what most bra- so if a brand looks like it's popular, it will become more popular still. What most brands do to, to try and harness that idea is to say we have a million customers. Nine out of 10 people use our product. That's the kind of literal interpretation. What I'm saying is that's just the start. What you need to do is think about how can you can apply this idea a bit more creatively? How can you imply popularity without directly saying it? And my favorite example at the moment is Red Bull when they launched. Uh, you like this. It was around nightclubs. Supposedly, when they launched, they go and find nightclubs uh, and then they crush up loads of empty Red Bull cans and stick them in the litter bins around the nightclub. So that when people come out, they see these, you know, bins full with Red Bull and assume that everyone else in there was massively energetic because they'd had a couple of Red Bulls. So it made it feel like it was a popular product amongst that 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 group. That's applying social proof, I think, in a truly, truly creative way. One area that I would love 
one of the guys from behavioral science to, mm. get, it, to get into would be optimizing YouTube thumbnails and titles. So this is the world that I live in, right? This is my currency for at least one part of the show. I need to get people to click on the video. CTR, yeah. click-through rate, percentage, how many people get shown it versus how many people click on it, and watch time, so retention. Retention and watch time is down to the editing. It's down to the first 5 to 15 seconds of the video. It's uh, There's a number of things that go into that. But the way that not only your title, title length, are you posing a question? Are you using punctuation in an interesting way? Are you using the Zygarnik effect to create open loops? How does this relate with the text that's above it? Um, it that is... If there is not a behavioral science competent team applying these insights to optimize thumbnail and titling for larger YouTube creators to give those insights, there is a huge agency opportunity available there. Because the Mr. Beasts of the world and the PewDiePies of the world and the guys that are the, the absolute, absolute top, they will be doing this. I know that Mr. Beast spends between ten dollars and $30,000 on each thumbnail. He has hundreds and hundreds of thumbnail options for every different video. Um, and then when it comes to titling too, he'll have reverse engineered. I mean, I know, for instance, that the average number of characters in the top video of your suggested feed is going to be 44. So it's 44 characters long is the average number. Um, the use of words that invoke a powerful or aggressive response, words like war, battle, um, uh, uh, shock, um, these are sorts of things that cause people to click. But generally, I mean, this is okay. both for brands and for creators uh, is an incredibly important thing to get right okay, I have this amazing piece of content. I've worked incredibly hard on it for a long time and I'm being defeated by CTR and watch time. It's like, I can't get people to click on it and I can't get people to stay with it. This is one of the reasons why uh, Fast and Furious 9, if you look at the pace of the cuts in F9, it is unbelievably quick. And if you think about the pace at which people swipe through TikTok, it's like swipe, 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 swipe. Swipe. It's more than once a second. And that pace that you move at is the pace that people are becoming used to. So Mr. Beast, his most recent video where he cured a thousand people's blindness by paying for their cataract surgery, that employed a new tempo of cuts within the edit. I'm not actually sure. I'm sure he'll speak about it at more length, but yeah, he, he tweeted about it a couple of days ago. Um, so that, I mean, he's always using eyes to camera. He's uh, focusing very heavily on blues. There's almost always a red somewhere in there. The use of arrows, especially red arrows, is something that causes people to click. So there are all manner of different bits and pieces going on here that will be grounded in stuff that probably already exists. But it's such a new format. And given that YouTube is the number two search engine in the world after Google... And it's so high volume. Uh, first off, selfishly, I don't want to have to try and reverse engineer this stuff myself. So someone should write a book on it, uh, Behavioral Science for YouTubers. Uh, but also, there would be, it's just a, a fascinating new medium to deploy all of this through. Yeah. So, I mean, that's fascinating. I think the, what, what the, the, the behavioral biases are essentially, I think, stimulus to come up with ideas to solve some of those problems. So, so ones that might be relevant. Uh, there's a lovely idea, one of my favourites, um, called The Illusion of Control. And it's by Ellen Langer, who was a Harvard psychologist back in the 70s. And it's 1975. She goes around an office block 
and she tries to sell people lottery tickets for one dollar half the people just are given the lottery ticket for a dollar and they are given their numbers there's no choice half of them get to pick their numbers she then waits a week and then just before the draw for the lottery she goes back to the office and she tries to buy back those tickets now the first thing she finds is that everyone wants more than they paid so there's an idea called the endowment effect once we own it we value it more but that's not what she was studying she wanted to know the difference in valuation between the two groups the first group who had no choice on average they want eight one dollar uh, 96 to sell their ticket back but the group who got to pick their numbers they want eight dollars 67. so there is a fourfold variation in the valuation of what is quite obviously a commodity. Langer's argument is one of the biggest drivers of our, um, uh, of our behavior is the desire for a sense of control, for a sense of agency. So even if you give someone a completely meaningful, uh, a meaningless or superfluous choice, it will make them value whatever they pick that much more. Now in my world of thinking about how you get people to buy things or change their behavior, you can take that principle and you can apply it to your promotions. So you could say, well, look, what most brands do is say, you buy this product and you get this reward. What Langer would say, that's a mistake. You should give people an option of two things. So maybe it's a free pizza or a car wash. Even if 100% of people pick the pizza, there is still a value in offering the car wash. It's very present, allows people to choose. And because they have picked it, they value that that pizza more. So I wonder with some of these um, uh, attempts to encourage people to engage is, is, is giving the audience maybe some degree of choice. It doesn't have to be meaningful. It could be whether your background is blue or red or you're going to launch on a Tuesday or Wednesday. The more the more you can get them to feel like a sense of control, the more uh, likely they will appreciate the product. The Keats heuristic. Keats heuristic. Uh, so that is a idea that uh, phrases that rhyme are more believable. So study done nineteen ninety nine. I think a follow up maybe two thousand by Matthew McGlone, uh, and I think and apologies if I'm pronouncing this wrong. Jessica Chofikbash. And what they did was give people lists of pseudo proverbs. So. We would both get a list of proverbs and on your list, you might see something like, um, what might you get? Um, uh, I don't know. If you drink, it will help you think. And I might get, if you drink, it will help you ponder. Now that isn't actually one of their examples. That's pretty naff, but that's the basically what they did. You know, it's exactly the same sentiment for the fake proverb. But one of us gets it in a rhyming form. One of us gets in a non-rhyming form. And they give out loads of these different lists with lots of different variations. So essentially, they can compare how believable the proverb is when it rhymes, how believable is it when it doesn't rhyme. And they see a statistically significant increase in believability and belief in the accuracy of the proverb if someone got it in a rhyming variation. Now, fascinatingly, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, if they say to people, look, you rated all these different proverbs. Do you think you were influenced? Do you think you picked the rhyming ones because they rhymed? Do you think they said they were accurate? And I think it's one person in the entire study says, yeah, that might have influenced me. Everyone else says, oh, no, no, definitely not. 
but by her dispassionate you know, A versus B test, she sees rhyme does have an effect. Now, I was interested in this for a couple of reasons. Like, firstly, I thought, well, that's really interesting, but advertisers don't just need to boost believability, they also want to boost memorability. So we reran that study and we gave people these long lists of fake proverbs, half of which rhymed, half of which didn't. We then invited them back uh, in the evening. So they looked at the morning, then came back in the evening. And we saw people about twice as likely to remember the rhyming phrases as the uh, non-rhyme ones. It was about that order. I forget exactly the, the, the swing. But what's fascinating there is you've got this set of experiments which shows rhyming phrases are more believable and more memorable. Yet if you then go and look at the uh, regularity with which businesses use, advertisers use rhyme, it has been in massive long-term decline. It was a phenomenally common tactic 50 years ago. Um, you know, Pringles in the 80s, once you pop, you can't stop. Uh, Hague in the 1930s, don't be vague, ask for Hague. You know, uh, Mars a day helps you work, west and, work, rest and play. You know, again and again, we see rhyme being used. But if you think of the last 10 or 15 years, it has almost disappeared. I did a study looking at ads over the years and it drops to about 10%. So what's interesting here is you've got ad, uh, advertisers or at least the people creating the ads ignoring a technique that is very effective. And then I think you have to ask, well, why is that the case? And my thought often uh, drawing here on uh, Taleb's work is that if you pay an expert and you don't reward them uh, directly, so the agency is not rewarded according to whether you sell a product or not, if they're just given a, uh, a payment for their uh, advice, what tends to happen is it leads to complexity. Because if you are a consultant or advisor, you know that if you give very simple but effective advice, you'll get fired because it sounds obvious. So what, what ends up happening is you build an increasingly complex uh, model to uh, explain and, and, and make recommendations because it's that sense of sophistication that justifies your fee. So I'm fascinated here, not just by the behavioral science showing the effect on the end consumer, I'm fascinated by the uh, fact and the uh, system, which means this tactic is very, very rarely used. The internal machinations of the advertising industry are pretty fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and you know that's the area I'm interested in, but the same would be true, I think, for any service industry. Um, you know, if you are a consultant who sends a one-line email that saves your com the, the, the company hundreds of thousands of pounds, it will be very hard to justify a massive fee because it looks so simple and so easy and people will begrudge you. If you produce a 100-page report and have uh, loads of people running around creating, the, creating that report, it's easier to charge a large amount. So there's a, there is a tension between what's a, what creates effective solutions and what is in the interest of the agency or consultant who is supplying those, those solutions. Was it Ogilvy that did the thing to reduce complaints of wait times at security at London Heathrow? 
Oh, no. So I don't think so. Um, I th- Oh, my gosh. That was uh, I think I saw it first reported in the in the it was in a Houston airport, I think. So I think it predates. I'm pretty sure it's kind of a story going around in, in, in America reported the New York Times. So reasonably I think, uh, accurate that at Houston airport, people were landing uh, minute walk, say, to the baggage carousel and then a, a seven minute wait. And after a long flight, they got annoyed quickly and they started to complain. So what the airport did was try and reduce the weight, but found it wasn't really possible. So rather than keep on spending more and more money on a fool's errand, instead of sending the passengers directly from passport control to the baggage carousel, they just sent them on a kind of six minute walk zigzagging across the airport with this you know, fence laid out so they couldn't go there directly. Uh, and so people, by the time they got to the baggage carousel, there was only a minute wait and complaints plummet. And the, and the argument was we treat occupied weights very differently from unoccupied weights. So we're not bothered if we're walking, but if we're standing staring at a baggage carousel, then it's deeply, deeply frustrating. I think Rory missed in his Transport for Humans book uh, something that we could have done with regards to this that I would like way more options on Google Maps from getting from point A to point B. For instance, I will opt to drive a route that puts me in less standstill traffic but takes longer to get home if I'm going home at a time where there might be a little bit of uh, uh, other drivers on the roads because for me it is existentially less painful to go a route that takes 10 minutes longer and maybe five miles further, however, one that I know I'll always continue to yeah. move along as opposed to being in standstill traffic, even if it's both shorter and quicker. So I would like to opt for the route that has the highest average speed, perhaps. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. So that, that I, uh, um, so I live in London, so far less driving because it's just painful. But my view would be to get to another place in London, it's not just the time I'm interested in. I'm interested in the fewest possible changes. Because if I have to walk to it, get on a bus, then change the tube, then change to another line, then get on a train, I can't sit and relax. If it is a single train, which takes longer, and then there's a long walk, and I've only got one change of mode, I would massively prefer that. Absolutely right. There is a, I think Rory's book with um, Pete Dyson is, is brilliant looking at some of these areas that all the systems that transport providers have created optimized to shortening time when there are many, many other factors that that, that would um, make a journey more pleasant. Concreteness. Oh, boy, lovely boy. So the study here comes from a, a Canadian psychologist called Ian Begg. So back in 1972, he uh, was working at the University of Western Ontario, recruits a group of students uh, 25 of them, and we'll come back to that. And he reads out a list of 22 word phrases. Now, the phrases are all jumbled up, but 50% of them are what he calls concrete phrases. So things like square door or white horse. The other 50% are what he calls abstract phrases. So things like subtle truth or basic fact. The students read through these lists of words and then the words are taken away and beg ask people to recall as much as they possibly can. And his key finding is that the students remember 36 percent 
of the concrete words, 9% of the abstract words. So there's a massive fourfold change in memorability, huge change. You know, remember, some of these studies we're talking about are reeking out 5 or 10% improvements. This is a massive fourfold change. His explanation is, according to Begg, vision is the most powerful of our senses. So if you can picture a, um, a word, you know, if I say square door, a square door pops into your mind, almost unbidden. If you can picture it, it's sticky, it's memorable. But with an abstract phrase that you can't picture, it's very, very forgettable. So the tactic that communicators should use is think, well, work out what you want to convey to an audience. And it might be an abstract benefit, but you have to translate that abstract benefit into very concrete, visualizable language. So if that sounds a bit vague, best example that I know of is Apple iPods. Every other brand that they were competing with, all these MP3 players, they um, had the abstract benefit of memory that they wanted to convey. But the way they conveyed that was in abstract terminology. You know, Philips and Samsung would talk about 215 megabytes of memory. Completely abstract, completely forgettable. What Apple did was convey that same abstract benefit of memory but using very concrete, visualizable language. A thousand songs in your pocket. You can picture a pocket, that makes it sticky, that makes it memorable. So currently, businesses are communicating abstract objectives in abstract language. They need to change and translate those ab that abstract language into something far, far more concrete. You need to get customers to be able to easily imagine using your product. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so with this too, oh, you need to be able to get them to easily imagine your product, first of all, and imagine the benefits. Because people, you know, Samsung pre, or Philips, whoever, probably put a picture of the MP3 player, but people wouldn't remember the, the benefit of the 215 megabytes of memory. So Apple's genius was turning that benefit into something that's visualizable. There are separate studies, which are right. Uh, there's a guy called Ryan Elder who's come up with these ideas of perceptual fluency where he argues if you can get people to imagine using your product and it's a pleasurable, enjoyable product, they the purchase intent will increase. So he did this uh, bizarre study where he shows people pictures of cake and the fork on a plate, so the cake's on a plate and the fork's either on the left or right, and he asks people to say whether they would be interested in buying that cake. How delicious does it look? The twist in the experiment is half the people see the fork on the left, half on the right. He then questions people to their handedness, if that's a word, whether they left or right handed. And what he finds is if the fork is in the place where you would normally leave it. So I'm a right handed person. I'd normally leave the fork to the right. Uh, purchase intent goes up about 30 ish percent. His argument is you're just removing a bit of friction. You make it easier to imagine eating it. That gives you a chance to. Uh, mental experience, some of the benefits that entices you in. Even that tiny, tiny bit of friction um, can uh, change change levels of, of, of desirability. What about stories over statistics? So the the argument here is, um, I think the, the the study was by Paul Slovich at the University of Oregon. He came up with this idea called the identifiable victim effect which is probably the only bias that is supported by both Stalin and Mother Teresa. 
And in his study, it's a beautifully designed study. He recruits people under false pretenses. So they, they, they think they're doing like, let's say some maths puzzles. That's the psychological experiment. They finish the study. And then he says, oh, before you go, um, read this from our sponsors. It's a message from Save the Children. And if you're interested, you can donate some of the fee. I'll give you $5 or whatever it was. Um, you can donate some of your fee to that charity. Half of the participants hear about malnutrition in Mali. Uh, 100,000 people affected, lots of statistics. The other half hear about the story of a single girl called Rokia. And what Slovit shows is more people donate when they hear the single story and they donate on average more money. So his argument is it's hard to conceptualize or visualize a statistic. Now, I can't picture a million people. I can't picture 100,000 people. So it leaves me cold. But that description of that single girl suffering, that is easily relatable. That is visualizable. So I think, you know, a lot of these biases you start to see, you see interlinking. That one definitely comes up in podcasting as well. So when it it comes to trying to convey any sort of story, I mean, you're phenomenal at this because every single concept, every single statistic that you try to put across comes with an analogy it comes with a story and it causes people to be invested when i first started doing this show you know when you first came on four years ago maybe even longer uh five years ago now um i was adamant that what you wanted to try and achieve in a podcast was to ruthlessly index information and to kind of high pressure hose it into people's ears which yeah i didn't realize at the time but basically makes you a slightly more conversational book summary service which isn't what you're here yeah, for yeah. what you're yeah. here to do is to get exactly what can't be conveyed within a book what can't be conveyed within a summary and that's a vibe so i i've uh, taken to referring to podcasters as vibe architects like you're just here for a vibe and adam mastriani who has a phenomenal substack called experimental history which you would adore uh, he did a takedown of peer review recently. He uh, decided to completely pirate a study that he'd done and just release it on the internet in a PDF, bypassed all the journals, all the peer review, and just said, look, you can have a look. Here's all of the data. You can reassess everything. Just put yeah. it on, put it online. He's phenomenal. Uh, and he uh, wrote a post lamenting why we forget all of the things that we learn. Uh, you know, you go through, I, I, I made an analogy about accounting. I did first year accounting when I did business at uni. Uh, and I can remember that one of the five principles of accounting is prudence. And I can't remember what it means. I, I don't understand what prudence yeah. means in an accounting context. The numbers are the numbers. I don't understand. I don't know what the what yeah. the other four are, uh, but I, I just have this. And he was like, what you have is this word sort of floating around in the back of your mind. But what I can remember, the vibe that I can remember is getting on the bus to uni on the morning of the exam and speaking to my housemate who was... Uh, less prepared than me and I felt very underprepared yeah. and the vibe that I remembered from that interaction and that exam overall was wow no matter how underprepared you think you are there is still way further to fall and for yeah. the most part you're going to be in the middle of the bell curve of whatever it is that you're doing that's the yeah. vibe that's the lesson that I took away from it I can't remember anything I did a AS and A level business then a f- three-year business degree and a one-year master's Still don't remember the five principles of accounting, but I took that away. And for me, that's the same as stories. 
You know, it's the reason that if you look at uh, Morgan Housel's The the Psychology oh, of Money. What a book. Yeah, yeah. Just outstanding. But he, he's yeah. talking about what is an unbelievably dry topic uh, for quite a lot of, you know, there's only, I think, maybe 15, between 10 and 15 chapters or principles or whatever, might even be eight uh, across the entire book. And it's a big book-ish. Uh, but it just falls by because you're learning about Warren Buffett when he grew up and you're learning about, you know, all it is is just easy, easy, easy stories. So yeah, yes. that to me, I, I, James Clear's Atomic Habits, very story oh, heavy. David mm-hmm. Goggins, uh, Never Finished, and uh, his first book, Can't Hurt Me, also incredibly oh, heavy. Uh, yeah. It's one of the bestsellers. It's, I think it's the best-selling self-published book of all time. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, it's terrifying. Okay. But Well, from... Self-published David Goggins to the Iliad and Odyssey, there is uh, an argument from a classicist called uh, Havelock, I might mispronounce that, where he says, if you look at all these stories that were once, oral stories that were passed down from storyteller to storyteller by voice and memory, you go through them and what you find is they are remarkably heavy on concrete phrases. I think it's the wine red sea he talks about in one of those books, uh, they're very light on abstractions. And the argument Havelock makes is because abstractions are easy to forget. So when you tell me a story, I don't repeat it to my mate exactly the same. It's the concrete visualizable elements that stick. So let's say you gave me a really abstract story and it goes through 10 people back to you. By the time it comes back to you, it will probably have been refined to much more concrete visualizable elements. That's awesome. Okay, precision. Precision. So this is a um, <laughs> this is one I really like because the the book is sixteen and a half behavioural biases that influence what you buy, and I kind of liked that title because there's an amazing Julian Barnes book, The History of the World, in ten and a half chapters. So I kind of had that floating around in my head, and I came across a study by Schindler at Rutgers University, and in this study, he gives people mocked up ads for a deodorant everything's the same about the ad in two different scenarios apart from one fact half the people see the ad with the fact that it reduces perspiration by 50 percent the other half of people uh, get the same ad but it says it reduces perspiration by either 47 percent or 53 percent when schindler questions all the people as to how accurate and believable the claims are the claim when it's a precise number is about people believe it's about 10% uh, more likely to believe it than when it's a round number. So people believe the 53 or the 47 claim, they don't believe the 50% claim. Now, the argument goes that we quickly learn in our daily life that if someone says something in round, vague terms, they often don't know what they're talking about. Whereas if they talk precisely, it's from a position of knowledge. So from my perspective, if you asked me how old my cousin was, I would say they're in their 30s. If you asked me how old my brother was, I would say 51. If I know the facts, I'll give it to you exactly. If I'm unsure, I'll give it to you in uh, vague round terms. So what Schindler then says is people use this as a cue to judge the credibility and accuracy of a claim. So if you want to publish an article, don't say 10 reasons, 10 ways to become a great podcaster. It should be. 11 and a half or 11. It sounds like you've picked these because they're all exactly right. Whereas if you say 10 reasons, it feels like you're just trying to fit uh, the list. You know, and you, you can see this again. You know, we, went, we were talking about James Dyson earlier. 
it wasn't 5,000 prototypes that he talks about. It's 5,187. You know, the more precise you can be in your numbers, the more believable they tend to be. I had Edward Slingerland on the show. He is a ancient Chinese philosophy expert uh, who first wrote Trying Not to Try, which is about Wu Wei, the uh, Chinese art of effortless action. And then he, okay. wrote, he wrote a second book called Drunk, which is how we sipped, danced, and stumbled our way through civilization. And his argument is the beer before bread hypothesis that civilizations came together actually to drink because it was easier Ooh. to uh, do that. And one of the interesting um, uh, justifications that he gives for why humans enjoy drinking with each other and why it's been such an effective cultural technology is that it switches off the PFC, switches off the prefrontal cortex. It means that lying is more difficult to do. And and people who are under the influence of alcohol are more accurate at detecting lies than people who are sober. Is that true? Wow. So I completely get... Uh, you're going to reveal your secrets when you're drunk, but I never thought you improved that. Actually, that is that's. I'd love to see that experiment. I'd love to be recruited for that experiment. Yes, That'd you could have been. Uh, you could yeah, have been on both sides. Yeah. Um, but so what you have is a cultural technology, which is basically a um, truth detection enhancer and a lie telling uh, reducer. So it's this very, very good, um, very optimal way to get people to bond. Uh, it was heavily used to uh, bond together armed forces for exactly the same reason. Uh, it's just, it, it generally, I, I was really interested with that. And I, I think that you're talking about the precision of what's going on here. That's kind of like a cultural technology where uh, reducing the ability of somebody to lie. You know, if you do, if someone tries to pin you down, everyone's, you know, tried to ask a friend about how come you couldn't make it to my birthday last week? Oh, it was, uh, (laughs) and it's this real big convoluted answer as opposed to, oh, I had a puncture or I had a this or I did a that. It's, you know, there's always five intersecting reasons why. And it's because they can't come up if, you know, if they're not telling the truth, that is, uh, as opposed to it just being a thing. Uh, And I I think that alcohol uh, kind of is a, a technology that kind of does something similar. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that is interesting because there's, um, I can't remember where I read this. The, there is an argument that why, we, we said right at the beginning that people often don't know their own motivations. You, know, you kind of think, well, why? surely there is an evolution advantage to knowing ourselves really well. But the argument is, if you believe you're telling the truth, uh, if you are deceiving yourself, then however drunk you get, um you're not going to re- oh, reveal the wrong of course. So the that, best is, way to deceive everybody else is to deceive is to yourself first. Your own, yes. Yeah, yeah, your, your, your own, your own, your own uh, yes. rubbish. So there are, and there are thoughts. I think that I think I read this around um, hares, as in the rabbit type thing. When they are being chased by a predator, they zigzag around, but supposedly they don't know which way they're going to go next. Therefore, they don't have a tell. No way. So they're duking. They're duking a a prey. They're giving the old San Francisco, whatever it's called, shuffle. But they, yeah. So, but it it feels like very random. But they don't know where they're going left or right. So no way. The the hawk or whoever else is following it can't learn its maneuvers. Uh, Of course, and it's also going to give away no tells because if you don't know, dude, that's such a that's that's an amazing story. Okay, so precision. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of worrying though. Now I'm saying it. 
how the hell does anyone ever work that out? So I think this is one where we should probably go and Needs double be, check. That could be you. You kidnap rabbits. Yeah, we can't come back in four years' time. Thank I you. Become an expert on hairs. Pricing. Yeah. How's pricing related to precision? So there is some lovely work. Oh, and this, I unfortunately, I only found the follow-up after the book had been written. So in the book, I think I talk about a University of Florida study by Yanisevsky and Use, where they show, again, get a sample of people, all shown the same items, block of cheese, uh, TV, uh, bicycle, some others. Some people are told the price uh, at a round amount. So the TV is $500. Some are told a precise amount, $505. The psychologist then ask everyone, well, how good value do you think the car is? What, what do you think the, you know, the real value of these items is? And what he finds, what the psychologists find is that when people give their answers, everyone uh, comes back with a lower amount. So everyone realizes brands bump up their price above what it's actually worth. But what the psychologists argue is when people see a precise price, they jump down in their kind of mental calculations in much smaller increments. So they think, okay, well, it's not worth, uh, whatever I said, $500. Maybe it's worth $495. No, maybe $490. Whereas if people, uh, so that means if it was $505, if people see the round price, say $500, they think, oh, it's not worth $500. It's worth $480, $460. So people assume that price, precise prices are marked up more fairly than round ones. So if you as a, um, a a brand or a business are selling something at 100 or 1,000 pounds, you're in this wonderful, you've got this wonderful opportunity of you can increase your price and you will increase the uh, desirability and perceived, um, um, perceived value of that product. Now, that study by those two psychologists is a slightly abstract study. And you could think, well, it's not really real world, it's the lab. But what Uber have done is released um, data recently on a real world test where thousands upon thousands of potential customers were offered a surge price. And some people were offered a 2x surge price. Some people offered a 2.1x surge price. And what Uber found was people were more likely to accept the 2.1x uh, price. So what Yanishevsky and you have found in a lab study has been proven in far more robust and a much, much larger study by Uber. There's just this sense that if it's a round price, it's probably been pumped up, plucked out of the air. If it's precise, feel that some thought's gone into it and people have you know, only put it up to what's really, really uh, necessary. There has to be a relation here between reviews and statistics around product reviews and stuff as well. Um, potentially, I think what this would argue, yeah, if you, if you better to say you've got 9,632 reviews rather than 10,000, that would be absolutely true. Um, the most interesting study I've seen around reviews, though, is that a five out of five star review is potentially damaging. So it was a Northwestern University study, hundreds of thousands of products, 120,000 say products. Um, they looked at the reviews across 28 categories, and then they looked at the likelihood of people going to buy the product. 
and all the reviews were scored one to five. What they found was that as the reviews for those products got better, people were more likely to purchase, just as you expect. But then at some stage, and it did vary by category, but I think it was between 4.2, 4.5, likely to, to purchase peaks. And then if the reviews get any better for every category, you start to see this decline in likelihood of purchase. Their argument, the psychologist's argument, was perfection is too good to be true. If you see a product, 50 reviews, all of them five star out of five, what is more likely, that this is a genuinely perfect product with no flaws at all and that everyone has all enjoyed it, or there's been some funny business going on and that brand has been, you know, paying people to put positive reviews on or, or editing out the, the negative ones. So perfection can be alarming for people and they just and therefore put them off from from purchasing rolling this across again into my industry there is yeah. now a five-star review on spotify for every podcast and there's always been one on apple podcasts as well and it's got a first decimal point so pretty much every big show that's not currently in a cancellation crisis is going to be 4.7 4.8 4 4.9 um, yeah andrew huberman who you might know or might not, he's an ophthalmologist and uh, neuroscientist from Stanford, is so, he, he's got one of the biggest podcasts in the world, probably top 10 podcasts in the world, but he's so what? unobjectionable that he's got a five across the board on both Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. So I actually wonder if I should message him and, and tell him that he needs to get some negative reviews. If he can just piss off a small cohort of people, he actually might end up with better conversions if he was more well, objectionable. Well, yeah, I mean... Yes. I think, I mean, the categories it was tested on were things like hair care and shampoo. So there's always an element of does this translate to the different, a different world? But the great thing here is behavioral science and these experiments set up a, a hypothesis to go out and test and at least consider that you would never normally consider. I mean, who would ever think less than uh, sorry, a five star review is a problem? Most people think that's that's, you know, that's brilliant. It just gives you an angle, I think, that your competitors who aren't using behavioral science wouldn't have thought of. And it's often those underexploited opportunities that can be very, very profitable. That's a really beautiful sentiment. And that's one of the things that I adore about learning this sort of stuff from yourself, from Rory, from everybody else that I hear. Okay, so Richard, I'm going to give you enough time to make it to the pub. Uh, <laughs> the illusion of choice. Yeah. Where should people go if they want to pick that up? Oh, um, Amazon's probably the the easiest place, but pretty much any bookshop with an online facility will have it, and hopefully quite a few real-life stores. But, yeah, Amazon's an easy place to get it. And where else should people um, go if they want to follow the stuff that you do online? So uh, I tweet from at R. Shotton, or if they're interested in applying this to their business, if you go to astro10.co.uk, that's where you've got my company website for me give like consultancy to be like google and mondelez and, and sky so yeah that, that's the other area richard i appreciate you uh, and i'm very much looking forward to our next eight and a half yeah. biases that we still got to excellent go and i've built up a thirst so i'm looking forward to it as well yeah beautiful all right mate thank you See you later. thanks a lot cheers